Welcome to New Persuasive Words, a podcast of hope-seeking understanding. You're invited to listen in to an ongoing conversation about theology, culture, and politics between your co-hosts, Scott Jones and Bill Bohr. Regardless of topic, Bill and Scott offer intelligent insights and critiques, sometimes funny, occasionally contentious, but always remaining friends. Now, here are Scott and Bill. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 266. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr. And Bill, here we are yet again. Yeah. It's yeah. a relatively nice day, a little gray. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, I wanted to golf today, but it wasn't quite nice enough to golf. It's supposed to have thunderstorms and such, but um, it's a good day to catch up. Next week is horrendous for me, so this was a good day to catch up. I tend to like gray days in spring more than fall because at least in my mind it's like getting nicer out but yeah that's my mindset yeah there's a lot happened since we have last podcast um there was another episode of game of thrones yeah yeah which is continuing to be (laughs) interesting yeah i actually am gonna have to avoid all i'm not gonna get to watch it sunday night i'm going doing a quick run to chambersburg and um, my mom doesn't have HBO and I have it on my computer, but it doesn't let me, Comcast doesn't let me watch it if the home that I'm in doesn't have Comcast. Am I doing something wrong there? Well, you should be able to use HBO Go. You should be able to get the HBO Go app. And, okay, I'll try that. And just sign into the HBO or HBO Now. Yeah. Then you'd give them your Comcast password and then it will. Well, let me do that. No, yeah. I'll try that. I think I've done it before. Sometimes I work, sometimes it doesn't. I was somewhere where it didn't work once. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's key to have your HBO stuff in line for Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. That's, well, uh, yeah. Because it could pass you by very easily. Like, the amount of spoilers. That oh, yeah. There's just, so much out there. It's regularly. I mean, But the uh, 76ers are on as well on Sunday night. So, the you know, the game will spill into Game of Thrones. This is true. Game 7. We need to win game that. Game 7. Yeah, so Game of Thrones happened. A lot of people—it's it's fascinating to me how critical. I mean, people are of the last episode. I mean, it's first of all, it's just a show. <laughs> it is just a show. I mean, part of—I mean, part of it's on them. Yeah, you you wait as long as you do to release the last season. The expectations are way high. But uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting everything. I, I like the feminist deconstruction of the thing, uh, the social justice, the oh gosh, the literary. It's just been it's fascinating to listen to people be crypt. Yeah, my friend Chris Curtan and I had a whole discussion about this on the Atlas Project podcast about how we are basically we have high perfectionist expectations of our entertainment and cynical and low expectations of politics and public life. Yeah, that sounds a lot like the end of the Roman Empire, right? Yep. Something into the yep. end of the Republic. Yeah, speaking of which, there were some steps towards that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess some very serious. I mean, I this you know the idea of getting everyone numb uh, that we um, we just are not. There's just not enough alarm. First of all, there there seems to be no patriots uh, left in the Republican side of Congress for more or less. I, I'm just that just boggles my mind that. Uh, that they've just acquiesced to the executive branch like this, that there's no inherent respect for their own institution, uh, particularly the Senate. So, yeah, that's 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 not good at all for the for the. I was revisiting some to Tocqueville, and he's talking about republics being based on virtue and not like personal virtue so much as public virtue. Right, right. 
And he worried that in America, everybody's so individualistic and wants right. to make money. And could it really sustain liberty? Interesting. Maybe de Tocqueville was honest. Yeah, well, I think I think I think it's very very possible that he was. Um, and then we lost a um, you know a Christian leader, an influencer, way too young. An influencer thought leader, Rachel Held Evans. Yeah, she was a prominent figure on the landscape of sort of Christian post-evangelicals. I think, you know, I think her biggest contribution, or, or at least I'd say what put her on the map was her ability to, in a really articulate fashion, narrate publicly the story of so many people's personal religious journey, a kind of stifling, legalistic, reductionistic, kind of controlling sort of fundamentalist or very conservative evangelicalism. And and the and the struggles with that, the the doubts that come with it, some of which are just honest, some of which the form of faith actually creates. Right. Right. And yeah. and then kind of trying to think expansively beyond that and eventually left evangelicalism for the Episcopal Church USA, and tragically, that yeah, it's such a tragic way to die. She had a reaction to antibiotics that was really awful. Yeah, thirty-seven leaves behind a husband, Children. a three-year-old, and one just about to turn one. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there are so many tragic and stupid ways to die, and uh, I've seen too many of them. You know, one of the things you and I talked about was partially because, um, you know, I, I certainly. You know, claim my evangelical roots, but that's that's really a group that hasn't really, you know. I think what I I said to you was, I think I took the the uh, the spoils of Egypt with me when I left evangelicalism, and haven't had a need to really, uh, haven't had a great need to um, you know continue to react to that that tribe. But she she was able to articulate the experience. And, you know, one of the things you said that. If you if you lose bad faith, that's not losing faith. You know, when you when you reject cultural constructs and constraints and and prejudices that are that guise themselves as Christianity but aren't really Christianity, then to lose that actually is gives you an opportunity to to gain a deeper new faith. And I think for me, her story, what was so encouraging about it was that she didn't quit Christianity and that uh, the the um, the baptismal grace of uh, Held on to her, and she held on to it. Um, one of the things that you, all, you and I were talking about—I uh, guess that was yesterday. What uh, you know? I mean, it's understandable the kind of the hagiography that goes on uh, with someone who has had an influence, particularly someone when they die young and tragic. Um, what was interesting to you, and then to me, is is how the how her critics have used this moment as well. It's kind yeah, of fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of post-mortem kind of criticism. And what's interesting to me is from people that didn't seem to interact with her in life. I mean, yeah. maybe they did, you know, who, you know, because there's lots of online interactions and stuff like that. But it, it seemed like people use this moment to sort of hold up an example of sort of false faith or bad teaching or you know, people sort of praying that she was with the Lord because, <laughs> because or the testimony that she gave, the explicit witness she gave to the content of her faith would lead them to sort of differ, you know, to, to, to be less than hopeful, but they want to hope against hope kind of stuff. That, it's interesting to me that people spent a lot of time putting thoughts like that down and putting them out there. Yeah, in the world. But, it's one thing if you think that. That's problematic in its own way, but certainly for some people, the kingdom of God is much smaller than for other people. But to actually put it out there in the aftermath of her death, that I don't know what 
what causes that? You and I maybe we speculate. You know, maybe uh, there could. Let's give them first of all. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Howbeit, a very small benefit of the doubt that maybe they actually think that she was a her thinking. Let's not say her, but the thinking she espoused was a threat to uh, the Orthodox faith. So you felt the need to, you know. Uh, you know, take a stand for the faith, I guess. But I think to me, you know, uh, and you and I talk about this all the time, um, you know, there was a kind of, she voiced a kind of anxiety or she represented a sense of, uh, of you know, the emperor has no clothes on in a lot of Protestant Christianity. And, and I think uh, um, people... People that makes them nervous when people who once believed the same things, you know, they they still believe, no longer believes that, yet still is able to embrace the faith. I think that that's more threatening to people than if someone just abandons the faith. Yeah, I I suppose. I mean, I suppose they're. But it's funny because even some of the critics like were outside of evangelicalism, you know. Well, although although most of them were some form of conservative. I mean, well, they ha- maybe they had to take a break from trying to. Uh, do a heresy trial on the Pope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my, there we go. I'm, you know, I'm glad there's some people in the world who think that's important. Actually, I'm not glad there are some people in the world who think that's Peter important. Peter Lightheart was put on trial for heresy in the PCA, and he beat the rat. Yeah, good for him. Good that's for him. impressive. Yeah, it's. I think it's pretty easy to get put on trial for heresy in the PCA. It, it's probably easier than in many <laughs> contexts. <laughs> many contexts. Yeah. Uh, what did we used to say at First Presbyterian Church? The only sin was bad taste. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. If you, exactly. didn't, if you used the wrong, if you used the wrong fork, I thought that was more in the Episcopal Church. The salad fork would have been a bigger sin. Uh, well, you know, first first church and you know, first pres and Midland kind of occupied that space. All right. All right. Cultur- culturally. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, there we go. There the, we are. So the, the republic is 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 fragile. Fragile uh, people are are weird online, and you might not be able to see Game of Thrones. Yeah, Game of Thrones, and this is and, such a hard weekend we're going into. And there are people spending a lot of energy on the idea that the Pope needs to be on trial for heresy. So pretty much, can you put the Pope on trial? How would you do that? Yeah, I don't know. Well, let me think. Is it like it's like you know the president and you can't like can you the Justice Department really indict him? Can you really put the? I mean, I thought the Pope calls the trials. He does. He does call trial, but there is there are there are mechanisms. I'm trying. I'm, I'm my medieval medieval brain is at work here right now. But uh, all right, yeah. If you say so, <laughs> it's difficult though, particularly since the. Uh, uh, he's infallible now that he speaks ex. I would never leave the chair. That's true. <laughs> I would put wheels on that chair, just go around all the I would never leave the chair if that was if, that, if I was in foul like cathedral. That solves it. There we go. That's good. I'd just be going around and no uh, no no pineapple on pizza. Done. Ex cathedral. There we go. We well, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah. I was just revisiting whether Mary was asleep or dead when she uh when she was asleep. I I got off on that subject the other other day. So if you go to if you go to Jerusalem, it, it matters which uh, which Mary Church you go to. Is she All asleep right. or dead? Yeah. If it's Eastern Orthodox, she's dead. If it's Roman Catholic, she's sleeping. Okay. So we got that cleared up. So I think the Pope's okay on that one. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it 
because of the conversations you find here. If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. All right. So, onward and upward. Yeah. So, can a command be a gift? That is, we we read an article. I sent you an article, which I copied via my iPad. And we should do the strain of thought here, because there was a string why we went to this topic. It, it's based we're on... thinking about, the, can the Christian life, is the Christian life worth... Like, how, how does the... We're thinking based on a conversation we had in our live podcast with friends from Crackers and Grape Juice in New York. And, and then our follow-up episode. So our follow-up episode, yeah. we're talking a little bit about issues of the role of law and grace or right. law and gospel in the Christian life and antinomianism, or as we talked about, anomianism. <laughs> yeah. And I remembered an article that I had read several years back by Chris Hubner, while well, he, he was a graduate student at Duke when he read it. I don't know where he is now, but called Ken A. I think it's called. Let me make sure I'm getting the title right in case people want to search for it. Can a gift be commanded? Theological ethics without theory by way of Bart. Milbank and Yoder. In the Scottish Journal of Theology. In the Scottish Journal of Theology. This is issue something. I don't know. It's early 2000s, I mm-hmm. think. So in it, he kind of contrasts most of the article. Yoder's in a little bit, but most of it is, is his contrast of Karl Barth's approach to theological ethics and John Milbank's. Right. And John Milbank thinks that command theories of ethics in general are problematic and you know, he is critical of people like Immanuel Kant, right, who is trying to come up with the categorical imperative, you know, right. things that you should do at all times in all places. That's what makes them have the force of imperative. Right, you know, de- like the deontological. Right, the yeah. deontological. My friend Derek teaches his ethics classes. He says... The three main streams are consequences, commitments, or character. So commitments is deontology, you know, uh, of course, consequences are utilitarianism, and character is virtue ethics. Mm-hmm. So, it's a great way to remember. Well, it's, you get the, the alliterations. Yeah. Excellent. Yes. So here, Milbank is saying that, that command theory is abstract, and the 
Christian approach to reality and ethics is particular. And also he thinks, I mean, the, the broader context of Milbank's work, he thinks that modernity is basically undergirded by what he calls an ontology of violence. So he thinks <laughs> if you look at academic disciplines, economics is how we deal with scarcity, not abundance. Politics is the science of dealing with competing egoisms and power struggles, not seeking the good we have in common. You know, psychology is so much inner conflicts, you know, so all the, so he thinks that, that we have an inherently violent kind of adversarial ontology that undergirds modern life. And he thinks that's one of modernity's many pathologies. And he thinks that the gospel and the biblical uh, perspective of what reality is, is rooted in, in, in a gift, you know, that the mm. creation and the incarnation are both gifts and gifts are particular, they're spontaneous, they're not abstract. And, and you can be grateful for a gift and you can return a gift, but it doesn't have the force of a command or an order. And so he thinks that the relationship of God to the God's creation and creatures is one a gift and counter gift. And so here, you have a way of thinking about reality and the Christian life that, and his mind avoids the pitfall pitfalls of the ontology of violence. And yeah, so for Milbank, creation, incarnation, a Trinitarian approach to things. Yeah, and ultimately a church, if you would, a, right? Eucharist, uh, centri- yeah. yeah, Eucharistic centrality of um, yeah of, of the new community, if you would. Yeah, you are your you are most human in relationship to the triune God and the body of Christ. And the the climax of that is the Eucharistic fellowship. So all that stuff frames for him what participation in reality looks like. And there's a lot of really positive things about that. There's a lot of things that are attractive about that. You know, one of the things that the article does point out that Milbank has, if you would, this, well, the author has set up this Milbank versus Bart. And of course, Milbank had an opportunity to, to respond to Bart, whereas Bart is, you know, didn't know who Milbank was, so he no. didn't, so there's not an opportunity to do that. But um, so that's his what his understanding of gift. You know, it's interesting that um, now I I didn't read uh, I didn't go back and read much of Milbank for this. Uh, uh, so what does Milbank do of Torah, or does he do anything with Torah? The idea that you know, <laughs> there's something that happens between the creation and incarnation that. Seems to be the idea, maybe this. Well, of course, Bart, I think, is more based on this kind of covenantial relationship uh, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think Milbank would put that in terms of gift, like yeah. that. That that if there's a, an arc from creation to incarnation, Torah is part of that. That that Torah is part of the. You know, if but it is it is a set of commands that that at least from a from at least from the Hebrew scriptures and from Judaism is a is a is a gift that the commands were a gift. Yeah, but I mean also. Torah is more than commands. I mean, right? Like this no, is it's part a whole, of a, yeah, it's a whole way. Part yeah. of Chaim Simon's book on Torah recently was talking about like basically rabbinical legal theories. And one of the things he says is, you know, you have to understand that what halacha functions as for Jews is what it's not just legal theory, but aesthetics, theology, metaphysics. It does so when you it's, we, we, yeah, it's how we are a people. It's how right. it's how it's who we are. It's so, not, yeah, so it's there's, not just so merely... there's more stories in the Torah than commands, right? You right. Know, so when we say Torah, that's different than command, right? So it would right. be so you would. I think Milbank would see the Torah as part of the gift and presence of God moving towards his creation. But at the heart of Torah, or part, well, yeah, at the heart of the Torah is God giving Moses and the people a law, 
it's 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 deontological that way. I mean, the rules come right down from the man from from the from on top. So that to me that that is you know you know one of the things that's always interesting to me when you try to say what is a Christian ethic because I think uh, I mean I see all three of those in 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 the Christian tradition. You know, I, I think I do see you know. Uh, character, you know, I see consequence. Um, I see all those things, uh, community and commitment. All those are kind of are reflected in in the biblical and not only the biblical narrative, but the the story of God's people and God's relationship. Yeah, and I think that. Well, yeah, I mean, th- this is Yoder's point too. That the article concludes with the fact that Yoder sort of is against these theories that you know that you can any of these theories rule out tend to rule out other theories right that that, that all of which can be part of the christian moral life so but you know here i mean i think milbank's critique of bart is the is he sort of sees bart as kind of kantian right like that bart right. has these imperatives and imperatives are abstract they're not concrete like gifts mm-hmm. and, and and i mean kant would agree with that in the sense of that, you know, one of the reasons Kant would think that the Torah, or, you know, the commandments in the Torah are not sufficient ethically is you can't abstract them sufficiently. You can't say, you know, for Kant, what, you know, why would you not do something, right? You would not do something because, or you would do something or not do something based on the fact that could I make this a universal principle that if right. everybody abided by it, what would happen, right? right. And right. so if, if you know, if, if you didn't do X, then you, and if everybody followed that example, then the universe would be morally incoherent. And so Kant thinks that that's how you become autonomous, right? Right, Like self-legislating through reason. Where Bart, I mean, one of the points the article makes is Bart's command at the context of the divine command is in the context of a gift. So it's in the context of God's election in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. God being for humanity. And so the, 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 the command is never just a sort of naked command. Right. It, it, it's always God calling for specific action in the context of being the God revealed in and as Jesus Christ in, right. the, in the covenant. So there's, so there is this kind of, I mean, the author, does show that maybe Milbank is on his own grounds right to critique Kant and some of these other Enlightenment thinkers, but maybe not quite understanding Bart well enough because it seems that Bart, on the score of grounding ethics in something not abstract but particular, Bart really does that. Maybe. Yeah, he does. You know, yeah, I think uh, I think Milbank decides Bart's Kantian and then just criticizes him through those lines. Yeah, which yeah. Van Til did that. Lots of people have done that. Yeah, you know, one of the things I do think going back to your you know, and maybe there is, you know, this idea of this dance between um, the fact that you can talk about Christian ethics from from a lot of different theoretical frameworks. I mean, just for instance, try to do a study of what St. Augustine's ethics are, and you're gonna you're gonna it's it's really rich, and you're gonna be frustrated because it depends on what work, it depends on what period. Because sometimes you know, you know, ethics is to be happy, you know, the classical sense. But then other times he sounds deontological. Other times, you know, uh, there's even some consequentialism in Augustine. So there's a sense where I think because he is doing – because I do think there's a sense where there is a kind of relativity to Christian ethics because it it takes seriously individuals. It takes seriously um, particular situations. Um, You know, one of the things I've always thought that one of the worst models in the world – for Christian ethics is what would Jesus do? Because one of the things the Gospels, if you read the Gospels honestly and openly, 
Jesus is really unpredictable. <laughs> and uh, you can probably figure out where he's going. You know, you know, he's going to Jerusalem and he'll he'll go where he's invited, right? Uh, but other than that, what he's gonna do, it's it's an open it's an open uh, book on that. And uh, I think that speaks just like Donald Trump. What will Trump do? Yeah, we it's go. very similar. Very similar. Yeah. So maybe those evangelicals think that he's Yeah, I like Trump who, at the prayer breakfast. He's like I mean, when it comes to our, uh, our, uh, to, to thinking about this difficult job, I'll say, Mr. Vice President, you know, what we both do is we we we, you know, try to work hard and we think about God. And it was like he didn't even say we pray. He was like, you know, we we think about God. right, Mike. That's what you do, right? You think about God, right? I got it right, right? Make it my yes. That was so great. <laughs> you know, I, I think your uh, earlier uh, description of of uh, and I can't remember who you were quoting about what Torah is is all encompassing. Oh yeah, Chaim Simon. Yeah, I mean that might be really where the continuity is in terms of you know. Um, what Christian ethics is. Certainly John Calvin would appreciate that. The idea that this continuity is that it's not merely, it's, it's this organic hold to be, um, to be an ethical Christian is to be true to your Lord and to be in communion with your brothers and sisters and to care for the world. I mean, there's a sense where it's not about, all right, here are the 10 things we can or cannot do. It's about who you know who we belong to and who we are in communion with, and what our role in the world is. I got asked the other day, you know, what's the role of evangelism in in the church? And I go, well, if a church doesn't do evangelism, it's not being the church. And and so there's a sense where our our engagement uh, our engagement with the world is in in and you know again we get back to the prepositions in by through with Christ. Um, in some levels, this commandment versus gift, they kind of, again, they merge just like they merge in, the, I think, in what Torah is about and what Christ is, both the fulfillment of the law as well as the, you know, the abolition of the law and the creator of the new law. All those things are present in the New Testament. But if the law is essentially love, right, and love is something that requires freedom, I mean, I wonder when you think about texts like in Jeremiah, where it says, you know, there'll be a new covenant and right. then we won't have something like commands right. that are written because it'll be in our heart. And right. so it's this, it, it, from which Jesus says the problem, right? It, Jesus says, it's not what goes into a man that's found, it's what comes out of him. You know, for our problem is the heart, wrath, lust, anger. You know, you know. So it's a sense in which I wonder, is there a way in which we're really only free when we don't experience anything as really an exterior command that, that chafes us? Or we hold on to the original naivete. You know, I, um, one of the things I was, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the election this week and I'm continuing on the post-resurrection Stories and for me, I've never done this before, but I'm talking about the beloved John. So, follow, you know, I think he's that fourth character that, you know, you've got these great narrative around Mary Magdalene, Thomas, and Peter. You know who Charles Worth says the beloved is, the beloved disciple is? I don't remember. Thomas. He thinks Thomas is the author of the gospel and the oh, beloved disciple. Interesting. He's a whole book about it. It's a yeah. pretty interesting thesis. Yeah, it's an interesting thesis. Um, and that would make sense of why Thomas gets the, like, climactic yeah, phrase, yeah, revelation right. of... Yeah, that is that is interesting. You know, one of the things I think that I've never fully under, realized and appreciated was, I'm, you know, I think there are six or seven references to the beloved in John's gospel, or the you know, disciple Jesus loved. And um, when they're at the Last Supper, um, 
Peter says something to him, and 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 the beloved asks Jesus, "Is it I?" When Jesus says, "One of you are going to going to betray me," and, and maybe part of that, part of being the the beloved disciple, here's a preview to my sermon, but maybe the heart of where Christian ethics maybe always has to begin and end is uh, the full realization that you're fully capable of being the one who betrays This is what Jesus. von Balthasar says in Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved, that the only person you can speculate about going to hell is yourself, Yeah, the failed disciple. Yeah, that may be a good word for people out there doing post-mortem critiques. Yeah. All right. All right, my friends. Peace. Until next time, have a great weekend. Yep. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us for today's episode of New Persuasive Words. Hope you enjoyed Scott and Bill's conversation, and will join us back here next time. Until then, thanks for listening, and God bless.